the other thing that really, at the end of the day, compelled me to make the decision to jump in this race, and I was talking to my sister about it, is I felt so strongly and really quite emotionally. And what, this is what I said. If I don't get in this race, there is a voice that will not be present on that stage and a voice that needs to be heard. So I've been able to check quite a few things off my travel bucket list. I've been to Fiji, I've been to South Africa, I've been to Thailand, uh, but I had a huge hole in my resume. The one pilgrimage I had never made was to New Orleans for Essence Festival. I already missed Freaknik, all right? Back in the day, I never went to Freaknik. And then to not have gone to Essence Festival, I just felt as if I was really missing something in my life, but not anymore. I finally did it. I am fresh off my very first trip to Essence Festival, and let me tell you, it lived up to the hype. First of all, the plane ride to New Orleans from LA was the blackest flight I have ever been on in my entire life. Everybody in first class was black except for one white girl, and she was going to Essence too. Um, but the atmosphere was incredible, took in a lot of the concerts. Uh, somebody on Twitter called Essence Auntie Con, and I cannot unsee it because if you want to know what your aunties, grandmas, big cousins, what they are up to, they are all at Essence Fest in their finest white linen, wearing the best freeze curls you could ever possibly imagine. But as much fun as I had, it was also a business trip because seven presidential candidates converged on Essence because black women have become the most powerful voting bloc in the Democratic Party. Don't at me, don't debate me. No Democratic presidential candidate can win the nomination without the support of black women. Now, of all the candidates that appeared at Essence, the one who drew the most buzz and interest was California Senator Kamala Harris, who after taking down Joe Biden in the first presidential debate, she now sits just a few percentage points behind Biden in the latest polls. Now, Senator Harris, she was gracious enough to sit down with me at Essence, specifically at Spotify's R&B house, which was super dope. But if you're somebody who wanted to learn more about Senator Harris's positions, her proposed policies, or if you're just critical of some of the decisions that she's made as a senator, prosecutor, or attorney general, then you are about to hear straight from her for the next hour, unfiltered and unbothered. I have an embarrassing admission to make. Okay. Um, I did not know that Coretta Scott King, uh, wife, of course, of the late great humanitarian Martin Luther King Jr., I didn't know she had a book. And I'm currently reading it now. Uh, it was written by Reverend Dr. Barbara Reynolds, who once did a cover story on her for the Chicago Tribune Sunday Magazine. Um, anyway, um, there was something that she said, Coretta Scott King, that is, that perfectly fits in with today's guests. Um, this is what Mrs. King said. Women, if the soul of the nation is to be saved, I believe that you must become its soul. So it's fitting that today I get the pleasure of, of interviewing one of the five women running for president. And this woman right now barely trails Democratic candidate Joe Biden in a number of polls 
California Senator Kamala Harris. Welcome to oh, Jamel Hill to is be Unbothered. With you, Jamel. Um, it's so great to be with you. I, it is great to, to meet you finally. Um, I'm going to start with a quick story that's going to put you on blast a little bit. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I was recently in Aspen and I was on a panel about how Democrats basically need to get their shit together. Oh, you can cuss on this podcast, by the way. That's fabulous. <laughs> I swear, I don't know what I'll do if you drop an F-bomb. I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, so I was on this panel. One of my fellow panelists was Jonathan Capehart, uh, who is uh-huh. the Washington Post opinion editor. Now, yeah. according to Jonathan, your roasted chicken is the roasted chicken of all roasted chickens, meaning you make the best one on earth. So one, do you agree with his assessment? I do agree with his okay, assessment. Okay, and two, when am I coming over to have some? You come over, now that you're in LA, if I ever get home, you come over with your fiance and I will cook there, for you. Oh, there he is. So you see. Right here. Yes, that's oh, right there. Versace. Yes. Uh-huh. That's, that's. <laughs> That is husband. You to come, me. you you guys come over. I and the the joy of my life is to cook Sunday family dinner, and whoever's in town just comes. So you guys come, okay, for family Sunday dinner. Okay, all right. The rest of y'all in this room because I see everybody like, am I invited? Nah, just invitation. No, I'm serious about to, that though. I'm no, really I'm serious, serious about, about coming. It. Okay, so I will, all right. I will be there. Okay. Um, of course we're live here at Essence Festival. We found out when we talked off air. This is your first one too. Yes surprising i know and i'm embarrassed to say it yeah. because i've always felt a connection to it i, I'm, I think everybody i know comes in and and pretty much on a regular basis um but it's so special yeah it is so special Maya, my sister was joking that any of the flights coming in we just calling it the soul bus right? <laughs> no um, because it's packed with energy and with excitement right about knowing that we're all together under one roof celebrating the brilliance celebrating the power and the strength and the diversity and the and the sisterhood yeah right definitely i mean the flight that i took here from la was the blackest flight i've ever been in all my (laughs) life um and so it is awesome to see, like, the energy here is great. Um, every auntie is yeah, here that's in right. New Orleans right, right now. I'm here. I'm embracing <laughs> my transition into auntiehood, so I'm learning oh, that it's great. I need some more linen, and I yeah. need some freeze curls, yeah. um, and then I'll be all good. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but it's also turned into the Democratic National Convention, because you're not on, it's not just you here. Beto O'Rourke is here, uh-huh. Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, uh-huh. Mayor Pete. So how did that happen? Why is Essence Festival suddenly becoming the center for political candidates? Well, I think it's because candidates have figured out that it that you need to speak to and hear from black women and go there as opposed to expecting them to come to you. And that's I think that's a very big part of it, not only in terms of the symbolism of it, but just the the, the actual fact of it. We look at um, just recent trends that at least, you know, the general public has recognized, right, which is um, the election of the senator from Alabama or Barack Obama's election in 08 and 12. And the general public through those elections has started to to acknowledge um, the significance and the power of black women in our democracy, both in terms of as an electoral force, but also as a force of always fighting for the future of our country and, and, and fighting to, to, to articulate the conscience yeah. of our nation. Um, I mean, to that point, um, in the last election, 55% of 
uh, eligible black women voters. That's how many uh, voted, which was, I believe, six points higher than the national average. Uh, earlier today, uh, you talked to women at the convention. You spoke to them. So what was your message to the black women who are at this convention? I, there were a few. I mean, one was, I guess, mostly to recognize and thank all of the leaders who are under that one roof for owning their power and being such a force. And, um, and looking at it through an historical lens, which is, it has, you know, you talk about Coretta Scott King, we could talk about Shirley Chisholm, we can talk about Sojourner Truth, we could talk about Maya Angelou, we could talk, we could go down the list and talk about the, the powerful forces that black women have been that have shaped um, the history of this country and, and, and have forced this country in many ways to move to a way that is, it is, that is more just, more right, more fair. And so speaking to the group today, that was part of it, and, 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 and acknowledging for me the shoulders upon which I stand. But it was also talking about the fact that, you know, forever, you know, maybe because I was the, only the second black woman in the history of the United States Senate to be elected to the United States Senate, or that I was the first black woman to be elected an attorney general in the, of any state, and I was the attorney general of a state of 40 million people, you know, people would always come up to me asking me this really original question, well, talk to us black, about black people's issues. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, you know what, I am so glad you want to talk about the economy. I am so glad you want to talk about health care. I am so glad you want to talk about the racial wealth gap. And that was a lot of what I also talked today about and, and acknowledged the disparities that still exist in America and how we must confront them. And so at the, at the, at the festival, I also rolled out for the first time, because I wanted to do it here at Essence, um, I rolled out what I'm proposing to do to actually start to close the racial wealth gap in the United States. And, and a large part of my focus preliminarily is on the gap around home ownership, right? Because people have to remember history. In this country, even after post-World War II, where this country created policies that were about helping veterans, right, come back and, 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 and establish themselves and gave all these benefits to veterans around home ownership, and black veterans were excluded. Black families were excluded. So when there was this one significant boost around people being able to access and get home ownership, folks were excluded from that. And then you look at the history of redlining. You and I were talking about your native Detroit or my native Oakland, and you can look around the country, right, where black families, I mean, Cory Booker talks about this in terms of his family in New Jersey. Families that were excluded from home ownership because they were black. And when you put that in the context of the fact that the main source of wealth, the biggest asset that most American families have is their home, you then understand black families have been excluded from the main source of wealth in America. So I plan on dealing with that through a number of ways. One is going to be a federal investment of $100 billion. B with a B as in B billion. as in boy. B as in <laughs> okay, better. Brilliant. B as in more better. <laughs> more right? better. So $100 billion. Okay, got it. 
And and it will be targeted in a number of ways, but including um, for families that are now in public housing, federal public housing, and help renting our living and helping them get access to the loans to have a down payment, right? And and part of it is going to be directed at what we need to do to change the way we are measuring credit scores in America. So here's the thing. Credit scores, your credit score, if it's good or bad, will determine whether you have access to capital, oh, whether you I have access to loans, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You, you know? And so one of the things that we don't measure, which I intend to change, is we don't really have an f- accurate measure of people's financial responsibility. For example, in your credit scores, they're not measuring the fact that you pay rent on time. Let's measure that. Let's measure the fact that people pay their phone bill on time. Let's measure the fact people pay their utilities on time because that's an indication of financial responsibility, which is the whole point of it. Are you financially responsible so that I loan you this money? Well, so I want to change it so those things are taken into account because otherwise what we take into account are things that assume that you have wealth. And that means that you never can start out on the same base. So these are some of the issues that I talked about today, but there are many more. Um, but I, it's just so wonderful to have this, this forum to require people who are running for president of the United States to come and to address the issues that are at play in that room and also to listen. So I mentioned off the top that... Um you know, right now you're barely trailing Joe Biden in this three to four different polls that kind of all show the same thing, like within little percentage point. You had a huge surge, obviously, that followed the last um, debate. Um, but do you attribute the surge to just your debate performance or do you feel as if this momentum was kind of starting before then? I do believe it was starting beforehand. I don't think that you see that kind of jump without a lot of work that went into building a foundation. We have been building up a very strong team, in particular in the primary states, so in Iowa, New Hampshire, in Nevada, and South Carolina. I've been spending a lot of time there doing town halls, doing community meetings. Um, and so I think it's a combination of that, and uh, and I also think it's a combination of that and, and our message. I mean, there's so much, Jamal, about how I prioritize issues that is based on what I call the, the three in the morning thought, you know, the middle of the night thought. You know, when you wake up in the middle of the night with those thoughts that have been weighing on you. Um, I, that's the 3 a.m. agenda for me. That's the priority. It's what are people waking up with? What are folks waking up with thinking about? And how is that being addressed? Because we can talk about structural change. We can talk about upending markets. That's all fine. That's a good, you know, college class course in debate. But what are we really doing to deal with the things that keep people up at night? And so I, we talk about my LIFT Act, which is about getting for families that make less than $100,000 a year, getting them a tax credit that they can collect it up to $500 a month, which will be all the difference between those families being able to get through the end of the month with dignity and stability or not. We talk about my plan for renters, which is, uh, it's called the Rent Relief Act. For families and individuals that are spending more than 30% of their income in rent plus utilities, they'll get a tax credit. We're talking about things like equal pay. The Equal Pay Act was passed in the United States of America in 1963. We've been talking about this and talking about this and talking about it. Well, fast forward to the year of our Lord, 2019. (laughs) (laughs) 
And women are still paid 80 cents on the dollar. Black women, 61 cents on the dollar. Native American women, 58 cents. Latinas, 53 cents. I'm done. Like, we don't need to debate the question any longer, are women paid equally for equal work? It's a non-debatable point. The question becomes, what are we going to do about it? And I'm all about just getting stuff done. So here's what I'm prepared to do. I'm prepared to say, I'm going to shift the burden from that working woman to prove to the employer that she's not getting paid the same amount for the same work and shift the burden to the corporations to prove that they are paying women equally for equal work. And if they do not, because I really believe in creating incentives and accountability, if they are not, they will have to pay a fine which will be for every 1% differential between what they pay men and women. It will be an equal 1% of their profits from the year before. That'll get their attention. Yeah, when you start taxing them for it. Right. right, exactly. Right, like there will be accountability and consequence. And so these are the things we talk about, and, it's, and that's what I call the 3 a.m. agenda, and it seems to be resonating. And so when we look at the surge in the poll numbers, I think... It is, it is what we are proposing. It is the, the, the spirit with which we're doing it. And also, I just think that, just to be candid and frank, I mean, the people who before now have been polling at the top numbers, well, you've got one person who ran for, for president three times and was vice president for two terms under a very popular president. And you have the other who ran for a very long time for president, and they have high name recognition and a whole infrastructure that they built up over a long period of time. And so we're still in the, in the process of introducing ourselves to, you know, as a campaign to, to the American people. And I think that that introduction is an ongoing process and we're seeing the progress. So let's talk about that debate. Why you had to do Joe Biden like that? You just said, it's fragile. They ain't got a family. <laughs> but yeah, it was but one of the viral moments. But you know, here's the thing, Jamal. I have to tell you. You know, my sister and I were talking about it. When I, and I have to say when we, because it was a family decision to, made the decision to run for president. It was a long, thought-out process of making that decision. Because, look, I mean, let me be very clear. Um about what it means to break barriers. Let's just go there for a minute. You know, I mentor a lot of people. I gave the speech at Spelman recently because it occurred to me that I needed to point out to, 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 to folks that, you know, breaking barriers, you know, it occurs to me that some might think that breaking barriers means you start out on one side of the barrier and then you just turn up on the other side of the barrier. <laughs> and I said, no, there's breaking involved. And when you break things, it's painful. You get hurt. You may get cut and you may bleed. It will be worth it, but it is not without pain. And so, you know, those kind that knowledge went into the decision. But the other thing that really at the end of the day compelled me to make the decision to jump in this race, and I was talking to my sister about it, is I felt so strongly and really quite emotionally. And what, this is what I said, if I don't get in this race, there is a voice that will not be present on that stage and a voice that needs to be heard. So on that debate stage that night, I felt it was really important to insert into this conversation about these segregationists that they stood in the way and built their, their reputations and their careers 
on, on, on opposing the integration of America's schools. They built their reputation and their careers on the segregation of the races. And if they had their way, I would not be a member of the United States Senate and I would not be running for president of the United States if they had their way. Cory Booker, I mean, we can go down the line in terms of the leaders of today who probably would not be present to articulate issues that must be spoken and heard. And that's why I said it. And that's why I talked about the issue of busing and that there were real people behind that. And I can't tell you the number of folks that I've met since that debate who have come up to me, some with tears in their eyes, and said, you know, I, I was bused. And nobody ever talks about that. And it's something I don't talk about, they would say. But this is part of America's history that must be acknowledged. So that's why I felt the need to say it. Yeah, for, and for those who didn't watch or didn't see, essentially what happened was that, um, you know, you went after Joe Biden because he is somebody who opposed busing yes. uh, in the past. And he tried to make a distinction sort of between what he was opposing and um, a very thin one in, in, in my personal opinion. And he had recently made comments about how uh, at one time he could work with segregationists. And he almost made that sound like people call it segregationists, but really is racist. Um, and he made it sound like he deserved some kind of cookie because, you know, that was a time back then and, and whatnot. So it, it was just a full blown exchange that, of course, um, went viral. You had both viral moments because you, when you told basically everybody to shut the hell up in a very kind way, <laughs> they didn't want to see a fight, you know, because you guys are jockeying for a position. But uh, had you made the decision going into it that you were definitely going to say that to Joe Biden, or was that something that came off the cuff? It was. You know, if if it if the topic came up, I I planned on saying something. Because, again, it needed to be said on, on, in this national conversation. I mean, I, already, I had already spoken out about and, and publicly spoken out about, you know, in the days leading up to the debate about his statements about those segregationists. And, and what I said then is that, exactly what I just said here, had they their way, I wouldn't be a member of the United States Senate or a candidate for president. Um, I had already said that that is just something where we're going to have to disagree because... I cannot, st I, I believe in working to find common ground. I have a track record of working to find common ground. But on some issues, there is just no, I, I strongly disagree with coddling the reputations of people who, if they had their way, would have excluded whole populations, in particular black people, of access to equal education in America. So I felt it needed to be said. and and. There's so much, Jamel, about how I think about policy that really is, and it, I guess this is my 3 a.m. point, that is about taking it out of some intellectual debate and talking about how does this impact real people. And that issue of busing impacted real people, including me. And I felt that needed to be said. And so... I inserted myself on a, in a conversation that had been otherwise happening by the other candidates on that stage about race. And I was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. The question hold was directed up. at all the white right, people. And I was like, wait, I what? I was like, hold up. Wait a minute. You're like, you know? hey, and black then, person right. here. Like, uh -huh, like you uh -huh, said a few words. Uh -huh. I got something to say. 
And so that's why. Um, now, as you know, uh, despite the fact that, you know, we had Brown versus Board of Education, schools still remain very Absolutely. segregated. Yes. Um, is that something that you plan to address Absolutely. as president? Okay. Absolutely. And how so? And, well, for, let's, and just for, for, for the listeners' audience, for the listening audience, Brown v. Board of Education was decided in 1954. And by unanimous Supreme Court, led by Earl Warren, former Attorney General of California, but also Thurgood Marshall's work informed, and, and he was a leader in, in that decision to desegregate America's schools. And it took decades before the schools were desegregated against a, a push in America to affirmatively try to segregate the schools. And the irony is that post-Brown v. Board of Education, when the schools started becoming desegregated, you saw a flight out of public schools. That's when it doesn't take a lot of work to see the historical context where then these families with resources started shifting their kids, who they did not want to be educated with black students, shifting them toward private education, which was not as much of a thing, especially for middle class, upper, upper middle class families in America. And it started to become a thing. And with that went the resources. And so now you look at public schools in America and you see extreme segregation. Not because of a legislative body that has said black and brown students cannot study with white students, but because of just what has happened around the separation of children based on socioeconomic and other, and other reasons. So we do have segregation today. And um, under a Harris administration, one, I'm gonna speak the truth about it. Because here's the other thing, um, were we not talking about it at this level, it probably would not have been much of a conversation on this national stage around this presidential race. And I intend to always use my voice in a way that is to speak truth and part of the truth of America today is that these schools are segregated. What do we do about it? Well, first of all, um, part of what happens is, is we need to recognize we need to pay our teachers and put more resources. So in this campaign, you know, this is not time for me to be modest, I have been a leader in talking about what we need to do to put resources into public education. And, and, and let's start with paying our teachers their value. Why? In America today, I'm meeting so many teachers who are working two or three jobs to pay their bills. And now they got to carry guns. Well, if, you, if Betsy Grizzly DeVos has her way. Right. Um, then you've got... Hold on, that, about, what did you call her? <laughs> I wasn't going to let that shade just go by. <laughs> what did you call her? Can't help it. <laughs> See, that's that so, Oakland. That's that Oakland right there. I try to hold yeah. it down. You can't. I get, I, look, I understand. The Detroit comes out You're of right. me often. It's just in you. But that was a good one. <laughs> But so, so two and three jobs. 94% of teachers in public schools pay out of their own pocket for school supplies. Um, teachers are paid on average 11% less than similarly educated professionals. Now, here's the thing. There are two groups of people who are raising our children. Parents, often with the assistance of grandparents and aunties and uncles, and our teachers. But we are not paying them their value. Put this now, I want to put this issue in the context also of student loan debt. And back to that point about disparity around home ownership. So our children 
who are likely to come from a family that does not own their home. Means that that family will not have assets that they can then go into to help that child pay for their tuition. So they're taking out student loans, which over many years, have the student loans have been issued more by for-profit corporations than by the government. So our kids are coming out with all this debt. And I have a whole plan for dealing with student loan debt. Now you couple that with what might otherwise be a passion to enter the profession of teaching, which is part of the professional tradition, right? But when you combine student loan debt with that low salary, there's just no way they can follow their passion. So they go and take a job working for some corporation or, or go on. So when I look at the issue, part of what we need to do is address teacher pay. Especially when you know, and part of my initiative is, first of all, to have a federal, first time in the history of our country, federal investment in closing the teacher pay gap, which is currently on average $13,500 a year, right? $13,500 a year in most places is a year's worth of mortgage payments. It's a year's worth of grocery bills. It's putting a significant dent in student loan debt. So that's my proposal. Federal investment closed the teacher pay gap. Bringing it back to the subject. If a black child has a black teacher before the end of third grade, they are 13% more likely to go to college. If that child has two black teachers before then, they are 32% more likely to go to college. So you see how we can connect all these dots, right? So part of what I'm, what I am um, prepared to put forward is our teacher pay plan that would also give higher salaries to teachers who work in high-risk communities. And there's a part of it that's also targeted at HBCUs, which produce a disproportionately large number of the professionals that we need in the profession. Mm. No, those are all um, obviously very well thought out and dynamic um, policies. But I promised that I would not spend this entire podcast talking about politics as fun as that is to talk about (laughs) with you um i have some fun questions for you okay um that we'll get to in a moment after the break uh just two things for you to think about um as we take this short break um one what your favorite cuss word is and two (laughs) i I can too i have a proposal that i think will absolutely win you this election oh all right yeah oh good more of that when we come back So last month, I actually, I wrote about you for The Atlantic because I find that there is this specific conversation that's around you, around your identity, which I find to be, to be totally honest, to be truly stupid and a very dumb narrative that I can't believe a lot of people are actually engaging in. Mm-hmm. You got mad bots out there now, especially mm-hmm. after oh, yeah. um, uh, the, the debates. Debate. Yeah. Um, it just feels like your blackness is always being put on trial. Mm-hmm. I mean, you went to Howard. You're yeah. an AKA. Have you ski weed once since you've been here? I know you have. I have. I, not <laughs> in front of a camera. Okay. Oh, I have a story about that. Okay, go ahead. So I wrote a book. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I wrote, and some of my, sand, my line Your sisters, sisters are here? Yeah, oh. They are. oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> see? Okay. See? I, see? Oh, Jesus. Uh-huh. Here they go. Here so, they go. <laughs> so, okay. So, for the listening audience, mm-hmm. they've now heard what Skiwi sounds like. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, wait. So, so here's the thing. 
So I have my, um, my book tour. This was in January of this year. I have my book tour. And um, we were, oh, this is all going to come together. So we were at George Washington University. The place was packed, standing room only. And I'm on stage being interviewed by Jonathan Capehart. So he says, you went to Howard University. And, you know, we're in D.C., a bunch of Howard alum there. And they, you know, they say H.U. And they, right, okay. And so then I said, you know. And so then, um, and then he said, and you pledged Alpha Cap Alpha, to which my sorority sisters skiweed. Well, there was a journalist in the audience from a so-called mainstream, very highly read and regarded newspaper who writes something, a tweet to the effect of, oh, this, this group, the, the, the audience really is very enthusiastic about Kamala Harris. They're even screeching. <laughs> <laughs> to which black Twitter went bananas. And I, was, it, I, was part of that, I was part of that black Twitter. Right. I roasted it. Just, I was like, right, did, just took this journalist to school. Yeah. And... <laughs> well, right. that's also why more diversity and representation right. is needed in newsrooms right. because then one That's would know exactly it right. was not a screech. But, no, and the, but you know what, honestly, I will say just in full candor that I have said to my team, I'm like, look, I am not running for black history professor. I am running for president of the United States. These people need to know black history. And it cannot be as it always ends up being that the couple of chocolate chips on the stage have to be the ones teaching everybody else about America's history. It's America's history. And so, so the interesting thing, so the interesting thing about this campaign, to your point, is it's bringing out all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it is. And that we have to deal with and just figure out how and and who, and you know, to be candid again, I have to figure out where I'm gonna put my energy because I'm also trying to talk about the fact that I am now proposing what economists have described as what will be the most significant middle-class tax cut for all Americans in generations in our country. And you know, for, for other people who can't figure out, am I black enough? I kind of feel like that's their problem, not mine. And they're going to have to figure it out, you know, and maybe they need to go back to school to figure it out. And maybe they need to learn about the African diaspora and maybe they need to learn about a number of other things. But it is challenging. And I and to be honest with you, it is also hurtful and um, and it is real. So I don't mean to discount the significance of it, but, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it's misinformed. But doesn't, obviously. It, doesn't it feel very. Barack Obama 2.0. It is. Because totally. he went through the same thing. Totally. It's like you, we totally. didn't learn the first time. That's exactly right. You know, well, there and is And I no was a surrogate for then Barack, mm -hmm. you know, now our former president, um, during that campaign. And I remember actually doing an interview where I said, I'll never forget this. And I said to the journalist, I said, so here's the thing. I went to Howard University. And if you ever stood on this area in the middle of the campus that we call the yard, you could look to your right and you would see young African-American students you know, in leotards getting ready for their performance from the fine arts school or tuning their instruments. You could look over there and see in, in, in white jackets, medical school. You could look over there and see people walking around in briefcases, school of business, and so on and so on. You get the point. And I say, and that is the full range. And so don't, don't, 
punish him because of your limited exposure to and understanding of who black people are. And, but this is part of the challenge, and you're right. And it was something that happened then and clearly is happening again. Joe Biden has had, or does have, more African-American support than both you and uh, Cory Booker. For you, how much, and you talk about challenges, how much um, does your background as a prosecutor and attorney general, how much do you think that has contributed to the fact that some African-Americans, they feel skeptical about you? You know, I think that there has been a lot of misinformation about my background, and, and so there is a lot of work that I need to do to just correct the record and be very clear. Look, I was born a daughter of parents who were, met and were active in the civil rights movement. I was born into a family and a community and a neighborhood where from the time I could first remember, I was acutely aware of the injustices in the criminal justice system. There is not a black man I know be he a relative, a friend, or a colleague who has not been the subject of some form of discrimination or profiling. I, I, don't, I mean, my experience with racism is a very real experience that I've had since the day I was born. So when I became, when I made a decision after going to Howard and coming back and going to law school, when I made the decision to become a prosecutor, it was a very conscious decision. And I made it with a specific goal of, of, of knowing the power you can have to reform systems, not only from the outside, but also from the inside. And that's why when I was elected DA, I was one of the first in the nation as a prosecutor to start a reentry initiative focused on drug dealers, low-level drug dealers, and getting them jobs and counseling and support, knowing that so many of them went into that, took that road because that was the only economic opportunity they thought they had. I was one of the first in the nation to work on what we needed to do around young women who were being arrested as teenage prostitutes, when in fact their background was such that they had been you know, neglected, they had been so badly treated that they needed to have a safe house instead of being sent to juvenile hall. My background is that as attorney general, I was one of the first, I think the first as a state to require my agents to wear body cameras. Um, as, as United States Senator, I've been a leader in our country on saying we need to reform the money bail system in America because it is, a, it is not only a criminal justice issue, it's an economic justice issue, which is that people are sitting in jail in America every day simply because they don't have the money to afford bail versus, versus the people who have that money in their back pocket are out enjoying their lives with their families. So there's a lot that I need to do to, to, to help people understand um, not only the work I've done, but also to not buy into this idea that, um, that, that we don't also want that we're going to have safe communities and fight for that. Because I think there's also some that would try and perpetuate a myth that suggests that we don't want to have safe communities. I am never going to apologize for prosecuting somebody who raped a woman or molested a child. I'm never going to apologize for that either. And um, so, but, you know, there's, there's work to be done. But I think that some of our opponents and are actually trying to make what would otherwise be considered a, a strength into a weakness. And there is that manipulation that's happening as well. What policies would you say, or you just highlight a couple that you feel like you've evolved on? I know one that's come up a lot is um, the truancy 
policy yeah. that you took a very tough stand on as a prosecutor where parents could be charged with a misdemeanor if their child, I think, missed 10% of the school year? Yes, yeah, so let okay. me talk about that. Mm-hmm. So when I was DA, I saw the extraordinarily high number of young black men who were under the age of 25 who were being killed. And people just accepted that that would be the case. And I and so whenever there was a rash of homicides, you know, people, oh, let's do more gang enforcement, let's put more police on the street. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Let's do a study. Who are the homicide victims who are under the age of 25 when they were killed? And the data came back to me that included 94% were high school dropouts. So then I went over to the school district. What's going on? And I learned of the chronically and habitually truant students, 40% were elementary school students, missing 50, 60, up to 80 days of a 180-day school year. I learned that an elementary school truant is three to four times more likely to be a high school dropout, that at that time, 80% of the prison in the United States were high school dropouts, that a black man, if he is between the age of 30 and 34 and a high school dropout, is two-thirds likely to be in jail, have been in jail, or dead. And here's the thing. This was happening in my city, and nobody was raising the alarms about it. If it had been those kids in the rich side of town, you can best believe they would have shut down the system to address why the system was not serving those children. So when I took on this issue of elementary school truancy, it was to hold the system accountable, and it worked. First of all, not one parent went to jail because that was never the intention. And secondly, we improved attendance by over 30% because we held the system accountable to say, hey, you need to support these parents to get their children to school every day. Hey, these parents need to be informed about what is available to help and support them. It was stories like I learned because we were asking the question in a way nobody was. Because everybody, no, there were the expectations for these children were so low. Instead of understanding the capacity of these babies. And by the way, I'm talking about the system. The system's expectation of these kids were so low. I remember one case, we finally ended up, people ended up asking a question, learned that there was a mother who was raising three children by herself, homeless, holding down two jobs. Well, of course her children weren't going to school every day. But who had done what to concern themselves with that child not being in class? And it gets back, frankly, to another issue. And again, it's about what we're doing in terms of public education. That teacher is already saddled with over 40 children. And so it's like smart Jamel is in the front row raising her hand every day. Well, they may not be concerned with little Johnny who usually sits in the back of the class and and half the time isn't there because they just don't have the bandwidth to figure out why he's not in school today. But the system has to be more accountable to our children. And that's why I created that initiative. Mm. I was more of a like middle of the classroom kind of job, <laughs> FYI. Um, all right, we're gonna play a, a quick game called For or Against so that people understand how you feel about certain issues and um, so that they know where you stand. Okay. All right, marijuana legalization. Yes. For? Yes, for. Uh, death penalty. Against. Against. Okay. Um, reparations. Complicated. Um, that wasn't one of the choices. I know. <laughs> I, but you gave me a mic. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> so complicated because? 
Because here's the thing. Um, I, I want that we will have a commission that studies it, and that's what I'm advocating. We need to study it because it's complicated. That's, and, and we need to look at what we need to address and how we're going to do it. Because back to the point that I was making about homeownership, you can look at back to the point we're making about it disparities around education. You can look at health outcomes when you know that black women are three to four times more likely to die in connection with childbirth. So there's a lot that has to be about looking at this in a way that is about structural and systemic um, investment in communities. And it can't. And so the way that that's why I'm reluctant to to have a simple answer to it, because frankly, I don't believe that writing a check is going to be enough. I really don't. And, and the worst thing that I think can happen is that checks get written and then everybody says, okay, stop talking about this now. Without addressing the systemic inequities that are deep and require investment. So that's why I say it's complicated. I'll allow it. Um, <laughs> uh, gun control. We need reasonable gun safety laws. I I actually have a plan for that, which is that I'm prepared to take executive order. You know, like everybody's got a really good idea on the stage about all kinds of bills that need to be passed. Congress ain't passing any bills. They don't have any courage. So as president, I will take executive action. And after 100 days, if they don't put a bill on my desk for signature... I will take executive action and put in place what will be a, a, a comprehensive universal background check requirement. I will, by executive action, prohibit the importation of assault weapons into our country. And I will require the ATF to take the gun licenses of gun dealers who break the law. And you say this as somebody who's a gun owner, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So here's the proposal that's going to win you the election. Okay. All right. <laughs> Day after the Super Bowl, uh-huh. national holiday, yes or no? You know what? Let, but I'm going to add to that. Okay. And let's make it a voting day. Yes. The day after the Super Bowl. Well, why not? If we're going to okay. make it a holiday, because I believe that voting day should be a holiday. All right. And we can only put so many new holidays on the map. So I'm just trying to, <laughs> trying to be efficient. There you go. I'm with it. Um, also, uh, so thinking about like everybody's reaction to not just Biden, but it seems like any time that you're in a position where you have to question somebody, because what you did to AG Barr, like, you just, you know you ain't right. <laughs> I mean that in a good way. Um, that you really get in people's shit. So with that being said, you think Donald Trump is afraid to debate you? <laughs> he, I think he actually should be. Because, you That's know, because, because you. Let, me, let me tell you why. Because here's the thing. When I'm in those committee hearings, if it's Barr, if it was Kavanaugh, if it was Jeff Sessions, for me, it's about being there and just trying to get to the truth. Trying to get to the truth. And you know, like that old, that, that old movie about, you know, the, you can't hide from the truth. Oh, or, yeah. Right? A few good men. <laughs> right, a few good men. And, um, and the truth, as it relates to Donald Trump and this administration is that he has been a president who does not understand what it means to be commander-in-chief when he embraces the Russian president instead of agreeing with the American intelligence community that Russia interfered in the election of the president of the United States. He embraces a North Korean dictator instead of listening to the American intelligence community when they say that an American student was tortured and later died. Um, he takes the word of a Saudi prince over the word of the American intelligence community instead of on an issue where a journalist was assassinated. 
a journalist who had American credentials. Um, there is a lot to talk about in terms of talking about the truth. Let's talk about the fact that he came in talking about he was going to help working families then pass a tax bill benefiting the top 1% and the biggest corporations in this country. Let's talk about the fact he said he was going to help those farmers. I've been spending a lot of time in Iowa. There are farmers in Iowa right now who are looking at bankruptcy. They got soybeans rotting in bins because of his so-called trade policy that was trade policy by tweet. So there is plenty of getting to the truth and plenty to debate on that stage to prosecute the case against four more years of Donald Trump. Uh, he leaves so many receipts. That's why I'm just like, it's not right. like, you know, That's exactly right. Just the so receipts many. are there. I don't even know where you would start. Well, um, I, I call it a rap sheet. It's <laughs> another way to put it. All right, have you thought about what your favorite cuss word is? I know it already. What I've is always it? it starts with an M oh. and and ends with uh. Oh, not yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys know what that is. Um, and as the the late great Bernie Mac said, it can be person, place, or thing. Yes. That's oh, the great oh, it can yes. be it's transitional. Adjective noun, Adjective <laughs> well, um, Look, I want to thank you for spending some time with me here uh, on the podcast. Um, Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your voice. It's so important. This is about you, not about me, but I'll take it in the form of some roasted chicken. Okay. Okay. I'm serious Uh, about that. And so even though this is not your favorite cuss word, um, I close out every podcast with a, an award-winning segment or that I'm sure um, is the most popular in the country. Uh, It's a segment I call fuck it. I'm bothered. Cause (laughs) yeah, I like that. Um, Okay. So, unfortunately, it's not motherfucker I'm bothered, mm-hmm. but it's just mm-hmm. fucking I'm bothered. So, um, uh-huh. that is coming up next. Again, thank you and good luck thank um, you. as you go forward. I look forward to memeing you constantly um, because you have the best memes. <laughs> the faces, was it stares, Kamala Lee? I think that's, that's my favorite one, probably. But yes, thank you and, and good luck with everything. Thank so, you very much, Jamal. It's great to be with you. Bye, everybody. Bye, <laughs> everybody. Sometimes we think life is like the movies where there is a clearly defined good guy or good girl and a clearly defined bad guy or a bad woman. Today's Fuck It, I'm Bothered is addressed to the people incapable of nuance who fail to realize that two things can be true at the same damn time. So with that said, let's get into this whole ASAP Rocky situation. Now, as of the taping of this podcast, ASAP Rocky is in a Swedish jail on suspicion that he committed assault. Now, TMZ reported that ASAP is being held in a cell next to someone with, quote, severe mental issues who hurls feces at ASAP and it's not being cleaned up. He's reportedly sleeping on a yoga mat, drinking water that's not clean and only has been given an apple to eat each day during his first five days in prison. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. Now, a petition has started online to get ASAP freed. A lot of celebrities have been reposting the petition, and they've spoken out on his behalf. But everybody ain't feeling this petition. Crystal, who is host of the podcast, The Read, which is also available on Spotify, uh, reminded people of some ignorant comments that ASAP Rocky made about Mike Brown after he was killed by a police officer in Ferguson. Here's what ASAP told Time Out Magazine in 2015. I did not sign up to be no political activist. 
I want to talk about motherfucking lean, my best friend dying, the girls that come in and out of my life, the jiggy fashion that I wear, my new inspirations in drugs. I don't want to talk about no fucking Ferguson and shit because I don't live over there. I live in fucking Soho and Beverly Hills. I can't relate. Ooh. So a lot of people thought what Crystal said was unfair by bringing up what he said before, including my Spotify teammate, Joe Button, who went off on Crystal and on the people who chose now to bring up those comments. And here's what Joe had to say. I thought the ASAP Rocky sounded like a fucking idiot when he said this. Mm-hmm. I also think he's in a really horrible jam and predicament. I'm certain some of these feelings aren't existing right now. Right. Mm. And, that's like okay. and, that's, and that's fine. Like... It's only you fucking idiots that just won't allow life to teach us right. sometimes. Right. Like, why we can't just let life happen for people? Why we just always got to be public judge, jury, and like, no, come on, this is not the time. It's just bad timing. Now, Crystal and Joe got into it on Twitter, but I don't really care about that. As I said at the start of this, two things can be true at the same damn time. Yes, what ASAP Rocky said was tone deaf and ignorant. And he's made other comments that fall into that. What about Chicago? What about black on black crime? All lives matter category over the years. Now, ASAP Rocky, he doesn't deserve to be in a foreign jail just because he said that. And we shouldn't be cheering about him being there and under those reported conditions. But there is a lesson here that all of us can learn. The empathy you don't extend is the empathy you won't receive when it's your ass that's in a sling. Now, right now, we live in a country that lacks empathy. I just saw a poll where 68% of white Christian evangelicals say the U.S. shouldn't house refugees. Never mind that it's right on the fucking Statue of Liberty. We're one of the most violent nations in the world because we lack basic empathy. It shouldn't take us walking in someone else's shoes to understand what it's like to be vulnerable. Now, Joe Budden is right that we sometimes have to let life be the teacher and just stay out of it. But at the same time, we should know better. Stay unbothered, but most importantly, please stay empathetic. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs>